Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water and repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up chaff with unquenchable fire. Good morning. If you haven't turned there yet, please do. Please turn to uh, the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to be there this morning as we continue our series through nine marks of a healthy church. What what makes a church healthy? And uh, we're looking at some core basic things that need to be in place. And as you turn there, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we ask that as we look into your word this morning, that you would do a supernatural work that cannot be done any other way. We ask that the effect of the message would not be a short-lasting effect that's drummed up by words or a sheer resolve to try to be better, be a better person. We don't want to be a better version of ourselves. We want to be like you. We want to be like your son, Jesus. So we need your transforming grace in our lives. Apply the balm of your grace to us through your word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. I don't like keeping up on the news. Uh, when someone forwards me something, I, I don't want to see that. Uh, sit down and watch the news, I don't want to do that. But sometimes I do, I want to know what's going on. But normally it just depresses me. Uh, this week... Someone was telling me about a hit and run. Someone's hit by a vehicle. The vehicle keeps going, and the person's obviously wounded, hurting, and cars drive by and slow down to gape and then just keep driving. And passers-by walk by and look, and this is all caught on some kind of camera or something. And, and they look, and they see the person hurting, and they keep walking, and it's quite a few minutes before somebody finally calls 911. I already know the world is messed up. I don't need NBC to tell me. This morning, I just decided to just go on NBC.com and just look at the top headlines. I'll just read you three that were on the top list. 
U.S. Marines walk into an ambush. E. coli fears spark 4.9 million pounds of meat to be recalled. Wife of slain Olympian arrested. This is why I don't like the news. It confirms what the Bible says from cover to cover, that we're messed up and we live in a messed up world. Not everything was bad news. Here's some of the good news this morning so that you don't walk away completely depressed. Ohio man sets hugs record. <laughs> Spacewalking astronauts become plumbers. Kearney wins women's moguls for first U.S. gold. Now, Olympics are fun and stories are interesting, but they fail to counteract the weight of the bad news. The bad news reminds us that we live in a desperate world, and as Cornelius Planiga has said, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the news reminds us of that every night. Atheists will say, well, well, there is no should be. There is no supposed to be because there's no purpose in life. And the reason why they do that is because they grant a grander purpose in life. They have to grant that somebody's doing that that's beyond us. And so they say, well, there's no should be. There's no supposed to be. But then when a disaster strikes like the earthquake in Haiti, they're the first ones to say, well, see, why does God allow that? That's why I don't believe in God. Well, which one is it? It's either life is purposeful and meaningful, and so something like what happened in Haiti is a tragedy. Or life is devoid of purpose, and so something that happens in Haiti, like an earthquake that kills thousands, thousands of people, doesn't matter. There's one or the other. What the Bible clearly teaches is that there is a purpose to life. There is a grander scheme of what's going on, and that it does matter. We all sense that the bad news is not meaningless. It's not meaningless when people are killed by an earthquake. It's not meaningless when someone's hit by a car and no one wants to help. It's not meaningless when children are abused, when women are raped. We all sense that there's more to life than molecules and matter. And so we recognize that when things bad happen, it's because there's supposed to be something good in its place. We see that good is missing and we decry the fact that there's bad. We sense that there's something wrong with the world. So whatever the good news is, capital G, capital N, the good news that the church presents to the world, it better resolve those larger-than-life problems. I mean, it better be better than astronauts becoming plumbers. It's got to be better than somebody winning a gold medal. What is the good news that we present to people to say, this is the solution to the desperation of the world? I submit to you that the good news is not come to Jesus and you can quit drinking. Come to Jesus and you have a nicer marriage. Come to Jesus and you'll raise better children. Raising better children is not the answer to the desperation of the world. So the good news has to be something else. The good news has to be something bigger than that. And so when we look at Matthew 3, the reason why I picked this passage is because I think John, the preacher, John, the baptizer, presents to us a clear message of what the good news is. 
All the gospel writers talk about the ministry of John the Baptist. And when you read Luke's account in chapter 3, verse 18, it's in Matthew 3, it's also in Luke 3. Luke says that John came preaching the good news to the people. But the reason why I picked Matthew is because it, it, it explains, it, it lays out well for us what the good news was that John preached. John came to pave the way for Jesus. And he started preaching the good news before Jesus did. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Luke tells us what he was preaching. He was preaching the good news. In verse 2, Matthew gives us the content of his sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Luke says he was preaching the good news. Matthew tells us what he was preaching. And we look at his sermon notes. It's not very long. It says, repent. Not do better, live better, be nicer, get a haircut. Repent. Well, how is that good news? It's good news because you can't understand the solution to a problem if you don't understand the problem. If you get woken up in the middle of the night in your house because you hear some noise, you need to find out what it is before you address it. Is it pipes knocking? Well, then you call a plumber. Is there a burglar snooping around? You call the cops. If you call the cops for a, a plumbing problem or you call a plumber because there's a burglar, you got a bigger problem. You can't, you can't provide a solution until you understand what the problem is. You need a diagnosis before a prescription can be written. And I think John understands that. Storms, earthquakes, wars, diseases, tragedies, they all stem from one underlying root. And that one underlying root is sin. Sin is what separates us from God. So if God, is the, if God is the source of life, the giver of life, the creator and sustainer of life, and sin separates us from God, then there's death, and there's disease, and there's hospitals, and there's old age, and there's arthritis. If God is the creator and the sustainer of all creation, and creation is infected with the separating disease of sin, then we do not live in the Garden of Eden. Those of you who went to the flower shop this morning to get roses for your wife had to ask, can you get the ones without thorns on it, please? The thorns don't belong on a rose. Thorns got there because of what Adam and Eve did. This is why we have earthquakes, and this is why there's thorns and thistles, and why flowers don't just pop up. Weeds do. You have to work the weeds out and take extra care to make sure the flowers can survive because the earth is under decay. So sin has resulted in broken ecosystems and broken lives. Sin is the desperation of man. Everything you see on the news that depresses you, it's because sin is in the world. So the message of the good news begins with how to address sin in your life. Repent. Own it. It's not them the guy that walked by and let the bloody guy that got hit, in the, hit by a vehicle in the street walk by. Why did he do that? Because he's a jerk. Why did he do that? Because he's, he's a jerk. And why, why is he a jerk? Because he's sinful. 
And he's suffering from a disease that you and I suffer from. And so sin isn't their problem. Sin is our problem. It's why we started snatching toys from our siblings as little children. No one had to teach us how to do that. We just do it. Because there's something broken. Because we've been separated from the life source. That's God. And so John doesn't come preaching the good news by saying, let's all get along. He doesn't come preaching the good news by saying, let's all sign a, a, a list of things that we're going to live by now. He says, start by repenting. And then there was a response to his preaching, verses 2 to 6. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because Jesus is coming, he's saying. Then he quotes Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I had to stop there and think about that. Why in the world does that matter? He's not just saying John was weird or John was quirky. He's saying John lived outside of normal society. He lived out there somewhere. So how did he preach to all these people? They flocked to him. And verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I mean, he wouldn't baptize them unless they recognized what their problem was. Do you know why you're being baptized? Yeah, I need a bath. Get out of here. Do you know why you're being baptized? Everyone else is doing it. Get out of here. Do you know why you're being baptized? I'm a dirty sinner. Come here. He baptized them, confessing their sins. Because the good news can't be had without understanding what the bad news is. It's not good news to you unless you recognize your need for it. So his response was recognizing the problem, recognizing sin. But then he also recognized that you can fake it. You can say, yeah, yeah, I recognize sin. Sure, sure, sure. No, no, yeah, we're all sinners. Right, 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 right. Can I get baptized now? He was approached by a group of fakes. Verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance isn't talk. Repentance isn't coming into the pastor's office and saying, Pastor, I have formally repent. Can I get baptized now? Repentance comes with good fruit in your life. It's a change that God does and it produces fruit in your life. The Pharisees were coming, bearing no good fruit in their lives, but they wanted to be posh and, and uphold their exterior facade and be baptized so they stay in favor with the people. Because look how popular John was. We need to stay popular, guys. Let's let this guy baptize us and whatever. And John says, no. I'm not going to baptize you. The water doesn't clean you. There's got to be something else happening inside your life. True repentance means change. Not, I'm sorry, you keep doing it. I'm sorry, you keep doing it. Well, then you're not sorry. Repentance is turning around from that life. 
And so John made that clear. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're truly repented, that means you'll bear fruit. Real repentance means real change. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke, when he talks about this story, listen to how the people responded to John's message. It's in Luke 3.10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? John preached the good news, and they said, what, shall we, what should we do then? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, stop looking at your neighbor in trouble and not meeting their needs because you could care less about them. True repentance means you start loving your neighbor, not putting it up on your wall saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a great verse. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, but living it, doing it, it transforms your life. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Tax collectors were skimming off the top all day long. Everybody knew that. That's why everybody hated the tax collectors. They were robbing their own people. Well, what do we do? We want to be baptized. What do we do? He said, change your life. Stop doing that. Now you're going to lose money. Now you're not going to be able to get that home. Now you're not going to be able to buy all those extra garments. Now you're not going to be able to rub shoulders with the high people in society. But if you're repentant about those wicked ways, you don't care about that stuff. And you're going to stop skimming off the top. A third group, soldiers, also asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Soldiers are like, I don't get paid enough, so I'm going to use the weight of my authority to abuse the people and get money that way. He's saying, if I'm going to baptize you and you're truly repentant, you're not going to do those things anymore. You're going to leave here soaking wet from the water in the Jordan, and you're going to stop doing those things. So this isn't about do's and don'ts. He's saying real repentance is reflected in your life. It's not talk. It's real change. But it begins with a real recognition that those things that I do are wrong. Those things that I do grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To God, they're disgusting. And I need to stop and change. You can't enjoy the good news until you recognize you're lost. You're a sinner. That's not a popular thing to preach from the pulpit. But what then shall I preach? If we can't get to first base and understand that we're in desperate need of God, we are not okay without God then there is no good news. But we have to understand the bad news first. That sin is what separates us. And we need to repent if there's going to be an inward change. So John is saying the real repentance is a transplant. You take God takes the plant out of the nasty soil that's been poisoning it, cleans it off, and puts it in the living soil of His living Word. And that transplant happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He explains that. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 11. Matthew 3.11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming, Jesus, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's he saying in that passage? He's saying... I'm baptizing you with water, but this is an outward sign. This is an exterior washing of an interior washing that only Jesus can do. You could be baptized all day long with water. You could take a bath and call it a baptism if you want. That doesn't mean you're changed. 
It's an inward change that God does in your life. So when we baptize here, I want to talk to the person being baptized first. Who's Jesus? What is the good news? What's the bad news? Why do you need the good news? I want to hear that. I want to hear that there's repentance. I want to hear that God is doing an inward change of my life. And then the baptism in water is a symbol for the inside thing that God is doing in their life. And so those of you who are in here going, I can't lay it down. I can't change my life. I can't fix all those things. John isn't saying fix all your stuff, then come to Christ. He's saying repent about your stuff. And if it's real repentance, real remorse, a real desire for change, God will do that inside work. And that's the effect that will happen in your life. And then Luke told us that with many other exhortations, John preached the good news to the people. Guys, the good news is that we can repent. See, we come to a point where we recognize we're dirty, we're lost, we're dying. Then the good news is, but that doesn't have to be the end of your story. You you deserve to die, but the good news is you don't have to die. You're eternally separated from God, but the good news is you can find a way back. There's a way. His name is Jesus. The last verse here. If it were up to me, I wouldn't have put it in today's sermon, but it's there. What is a winnowing fork? Jesus holds a winnowing fork and he's taking it to the wheat. Separating the wheat from the chaff, well, that's what winnowing fork does. It's used to separate the wheat, the wheat, the good stuff that you want to put in your barn, and the chaff, the garbage that you'd be embarrassed if it ended up in the bowls of the people that are guests in your home. So you want to separate the wheat from the stuff that's not edible. The stuff that's not edible, it's not just laying around, you throw it in a fire. So Jesus is using that as an illustration of the great separation that he's going to make of the peoples of the, of the earth throughout all time. Those that have been called into myself, those who repented and received me, and those who stayed stuck in their sins. See, people get it backwards. We're all destined to heaven, and if we mess up enough, then God doesn't give us a chance? No, it's the other way. We're all born into sin. We're all crooked. We all sin. We all lie. We all cheat. We all envy. We're all selfish. In our thoughts, in our actions, we're unloving. We need a way to be rescued out of that. And those that repent and recognize Jesus as the one who paved that way are rescued and pulled away from the chaff. So the good news is that there's a way to make sure that you're the wheat and not the chaff. The good news is is that there's a way to make sure that you're saved and not eternally condemned. And that's the message of the cross. That big piece of wood behind me on the wall. It's not there because it's a nice decoration. It's there because that's the central message of every sermon, every song. That is the central message of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. One of my professors, Dr. Larson, told me he went to speak at a church one day and he looked around the sanctuary and realized there's no cross in here. He asked, why is there no cross in the sanctuary? Oh, we had one. We took it out because we didn't want to offend people. Well, the cross is offensive because it says you should be on there. The cross isn't offensive because it's Christian and I'm Buddhist. That's not what's offensive. What's offensive is the cross says that you belong on this thing. You should be hanging here. 
Good Friday should have been your story. The passion of Christ should have been you. Because you betrayed God and you grieve God with the things that you do, with the things that you convince yourself are not that bad because they're not as bad as the criminals on TV. But in front of a holy God, they're abhorrent. Myself included. So the cross is offensive because it says it should be you. You should be on there. But the cross is also the good news because it also says someone did it for you. It's been paid. It's been taken care of. What's required is not that you go to your own personal cross and be physically executed. What's required is that you repent and recognize that you needed that. That you needed what Jesus did on the cross. That's repentance. And so what is so ugly and what is so damning and what is so condemning becomes something that's glorious and joyful because we recognize I'm rescued from this. No matter how much church I attend, no matter how many passages of scripture I memorize, I can never crawl myself out of the mud of sin. But Jesus did it. I can't work my way out, but Jesus did it for me. And no one wants a new life unless they recognize there's a problem with the old life. And that problem is sin. You know, messages like this, um, I'm reminded of weeks ago when I reminded pastors in a meeting, hey, we're all sinners. And they all look down. And that should, should be our response. We don't smile when we say it. But bad news is always bad news. And I hope we never get used to it. Forever evangelizing someone, and when we come across that point, God created us, but then we fell. But that should be weighty. It shouldn't be flippant. We shouldn't have the salesman smirk while we're saying it. It's 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 painful. But then that's where you could bring in the good news. And that's why Paul said, Beautiful are the feet of those who come and bring good news. They're beautiful because yes, there's a way. That's what's awesome. That's why we worship. That's why we thank God and we bless Him. I had to ask my daughter's permission to share this. This past week, she asked what it means to become a Christian. And so I wasn't there at the time. And Tina said, why don't we go home and we talk to Dad and we can talk about what it means to become a Christian. And so we sat down and I pulled out an illustrated children's Bible, and I just used the pictures as a reference point. And I asked her, what, what, is, what does it mean? To, what do you think it means to become a Christian? Well, to accept Jesus in your heart? Yeah, sure, sure. But you see, if I would have gone straight into a prayer, well, let's pray that, Raquel. Let's pray that you accept Jesus into your heart. Does she understand the gospel? What did we skip? See, it's not enough to preach a flashy sermon and have an altar call and people come up and we go pray this prayer and it's over. And then they pray a prayer, Lord, I accept you in my life. You're great. You're awesome. You're ruler. You're king. I want a mansion in heaven. But if you skip the bad news, you don't understand the good news. If you don't understand the good news, what the reason is there to repent? If you don't recognize sin, you don't repent. You just come to Jesus like you're his chum. You're not his chum. You owe him. And you can never pay what you owe. So repentance is, I'm sorry for that. And belief is, I believe that you paid it for me. 
So what would I do with a first grader sitting on my couch with my wife next to me wanting to know what to do? So let's give it a shot. I pointed to the first picture in the book. I said, who is that? Adam and Eve. That's right, Adam and Eve. I said, tell me about that story. She told me a little bit about that story and how Eve bit the fruit and then Adam followed suit and that they, they disobeyed God. I said, yes, disobedience is called sin. That's how sin came into the world. And that's how thorns came into the garden. That's how storms came into the ecosystem. And She's following. So, okay, what happened right after they disobeyed? I think she skipped to like the flood or something. I'm like, wait, right after, you know, right after that happened. And I keep pointing her to the portion of the story where they realized they were naked and they felt shame. She kind of gives me a quizzical look. They were naked? What? I'm like, I know. It seems crazy to us because we have to feel covered up. Before they sinned, they didn't feel the need to cover up. After they sinned, they were exposed and they needed covering and they grabbed leaves and they covered themselves with the leaves and God said, that's not good enough. And so if you ever get quizzed, what was the first bloodshed in the Bible? And you say, Cain killing Abel? You're wrong. It's a real small verse in Genesis that talks about how God made garments of skin for them from animal. That was the first bloodshed. And it was God setting the tone of the story saying, it's not okay that you sin, but rather than killing you, I'm going to kill something else in your place and you're going to wear that skin to cover up. And throughout the Bible, you see this system of sacrifice where you take a spotless, blemishless lamb and sacrifice it for the sins of the family, for the sins of the community, for the sins that you've committed, knowingly or unknowingly. I said, now, Raquel, is it does it make sense for an animal to pay for something that man owes? No. Right. Man has to pay it. It can't be any man. It can't be any man who's stained with the same sin that everyone else is stained with. It can't be someone. You can't make an antidote from someone that that is already suffering from the disease that everyone else is suffering from. And so the reason why God asked them to do spotless lambs is because it needed to be a spotless person. And the good news, Raquel, is that God sent a spotless person. Do you know who that was? Jesus. You're right. Fast forward to the New Testament. Point to the pictures of Jesus. Point to the Christmas one. That's what Christmas is about. That's why it's so, we're so happy that that baby came. And then point to his life and his ministry and training disciples. And then there's a picture of him next to Pontius Pilate with his back flogged and his forehead dripping with blood. And she goes, ooh, I hate this part. I know. Me too. Because Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. You and I both. And mom. Her head is down, and I realize she hates this part, so do I. But none of the rest of the story makes sense until we get to that point. I explained to her, he died on the cross for you and me so we wouldn't have to. Then I flipped the page, and there's a picture of an empty tomb. And she goes, oh, I know that one. What is that? That's Easter. He came back to life. He didn't stay dead. I'm like, you're right. If he stayed dead, he couldn't give us power to live. Guys, we need to get the core of the gospel straighter. We can't evangelize our own children. When someone wants to be baptized or come to the Lord or you meet someone in a train and their life is messed up, you say, let me tell you why your life is messed up before I can give you the antidote. It's called sin. It's called disobedience. It's called falling short of the mark of the glory of God. We've all fallen short, every single one of us. 
But one person met that standard. And it was Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross so we wouldn't have to experience death. And we can experience eternal life because he rose from the dead. He conquered death for us. That's the gospel. If we miss that, it doesn't matter what our doctrinal statement says. It doesn't matter how many people are in our pews. We miss it completely. Join with me in a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would use this passage and other passages like it. Lord, the, the message that's replete throughout Scripture, beginning with the garden in Genesis, all the way until your promise that you will return in Revelation. We ask that you would work the truth of the gospel down deep into our lives. It's so simple that it can be explained to a first grader, but somehow it's so profound that we lose it in the mix of all the things that we do as believers and as Christians. So I ask that you would give us clarity that the gospel is about you creating man, man falling away, stuck in sin, and then you coming down to us to pay the price so we can live. And that when we repent and believe in you, that that is what we're repenting about and that is what we're believing in. And that is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, as we close in this worship song, we want to magnify your name. Thank you that we have this good news. And Lord, after that song, I want to lead those who would want to in a word of prayer to accept this gospel message, maybe for the first time. I pray that you would use this song in this next couple of moments to let the message sit, marinate, and change lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.